Good morning. Gosh, you guys are doing really well. I was nervous about how this was going to go this morning with, you know, having to use recorded music with Paige being absent and you guys are doing great. Thanks to John here for helping lead us this morning too. That's just been fantastic. All right, let's open your Bible to John chapter 4. We're continuing to look at this ex- interaction, this experience that Jesus has with the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well. Some of you guys know I'm, I really love maps. Some of you don't know that, but I really love maps. I actually have a book that's an entire collection of every Civil War map. Not the originals, obviously that would be ridiculously expensive. But your replicas of all the Civil War battles that took place and the layouts in these maps. And the thing is literally this big, this thing. It's huge. It's massive. I love maps. And so I brought some of my maps today. And after the service, you can take a look at them. One of them is an is a um, elevation map. It's a contoured map, so you can see the differences. You can feel the differences with your fingers in the elevations of the topography there in Israel. The other map is lays is opens up and shows you the two the place here in where John chapter four takes place at the well, Jacob's well in the Sumerian region, just outside the villages of Sychar and Shechem, and. There's a couple other references, landmark references in this place. You can see those on the map and get an idea for them. For me, there's a certain element of the scriptures that just suddenly, wow, this makes more sense when I understand the geography surrounding it. I'll try not to overdo it with the geography today, but there's a certain element of it that is important. So let's start. We'll read with start with verse 15 of John chapter 4 and go through verse 26. Actually, I'll back up to verse 14 so we have a little better grasp of where we are. Jesus says to the to the woman, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or I have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go, Call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worship upon this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let's pray. 
Lord, thank You for Your Word. Thank You, Father, for a Jesus who is willing to break barriers, gender, social, ethnic, to reach us. Thank You, Father, that You you broke the greatest barrier of all, which is our own rebellious hearts sinning against You to reach to us and save us. And Father, we pray that as we look at this passage this morning, that that you would just pour out your spirit here in this place and upon each of us and that that you would revive us from the inside out and that we would know that you are Lord, that you are above all and that you are holy and that you are glorious and that you are mighty and that you are wonderful. And, and we wouldn't just understand it with our intellectual minds and comprehend it as something of a fact that we would feel it and sense it in our souls and our hearts and our spirits and that we would worship you as whole persons with the mind, with the heart, with the soul and the body. And we pray, Lord, that you would just reveal to us now, Father, the very things we need to see and hear in this moment of our lives and in our culture and our society, in our church life. Lord, everything, everything that makes up who we are just reveal to us and just let us see what we need to see this morning. And Father, I pray specifically that you would cause only the words to come out of my mouth that you would have spoken this morning and that your word and your truth is exalted and that we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Jesus is continuing to have this conversation with this lady at the well. And we talked about all the barriers he had to bust through last week to do this. And now we start to kind of get to the heart of the thing, which is where Jesus wanted to go all along, right? I mean, haven't you ever noticed that about yourself? Whenever Jesus wants to talk with you, he wants to go straight to the heart of the matter and the heart of the thing that's going on. And so now we get to this place here where it's about drinking the water, you know, that She wants to drink this water that Jesus is telling her about. And Jesus wants her to drink the water that he's telling her about. But she's still confused about what this water is. That's really kind of the nutshell of this whole paragraph. Is he's talking about eternal life. But she doesn't understand it because of all the stuff that's happened to her and is in her life. And the culture she's been raised in. She doesn't understand it. And so he's having to bust through another barrier, which is the barrier of her own misunderstandings. And so when he talks about this drinking the water there in verse 15, that, you know, she asked him, so give me this water that I may not be thirsty and have to come here to draw water again. She's still thinking in terms of the physical water, a physical drink that will eliminate the need for physical thirst ever again. But that's not what Jesus is really trying to do. And once again, we see that, just as I talked about last week, that the symbolism and the parallels of Jacob and Moses, those well incidences are continuing. We talked about, if you remember, in Genesis, when Jacob goes to Padan Aram and walks up to a well, and then down comes, eventually, his wife, Rachel. And they're wanting to draw water, and he has to physically do things to make it possible for them to give water to the sheep, and then for her to give water. Then she turns and runs back to her family to tell them who has come. That her aunt's son is now here. And then we see almost identical experience with Moses. 
when he goes to Midian and they need to draw water for the flock and he's the one that does things to make it possible for them to have water. And then Zipporah runs back to her father to tell him what has happened. That this deliverer has come. These same parallels are now happening with this woman. And remember that the reason this all matters is because these Samaritans don't believe in the Old Testament as you and I know it. They only believe in the first five books of the Bible. That's all they hold to is genuine authoritative scripture. Prophets, there are no prophets. There's only one prophet, and that's the prophet who is going to become the Messiah. That's the way the Samaritans saw the world. And so this, these parallels and symbolism of the well issues with Jacob and Moses is how Jesus is reaching this Samaritan woman and eventually the entire Samaritan groups. And now it is Jesus who's giving her water to drink just as Jacob and Moses gave water at their wells. And then you have this question coming up about this lack of husbands and these multiple failed marriages. That also alludes to and has symbolism in it of the Samaritans and Old Testament Israel after it broke away from the Davidic dynasty and their unfaithfulness in the Old Testament. Right? When you read First and Second Chronicles and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, you know the area that's now Samaria is then called in those books is called Israel because that's where the ten tribes break away, and it is just a mess. It is just a mess with all their idolatry, and so this idea of the Samaritans is being symbolized again in her failed marriages, just as it was in their failed faithfulness to Yahweh in the Old Testament. And just as Jacob and Moses discovered their brides at the well, we see this same bride idea coming out here with Jesus and the church. It's hinted at here just as it was with both Jacob and Moses finding their brides at the well. Jesus is in essence looking for his, we could say it this way, his Samaritan bride. But he's not looking for a woman to be his wife. He's looking for the new believing church among the Samaritans. And all of that's coming out and all that's all that's laying over the top and underneath this whole passage as Jesus is talking with this woman. And as we get later on into chapter four, we see how this woman plays out the exact same role that Rebecca and Zipporah played out in their well stories with Jacob and Moses running back to tell their people of the deliverer that she has discovered. But then she changes the question. She changes the question because, wait a minute, whoa, how does he know all this about me? I've never met this man before and he knows that I've had five husbands and I'm now living with a guy that I'm not married to. How does he know all this? And she says, I perceive that you are a prophet. And then she changes the subject. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. You know, for years, I've always thought this was her trying to deflect and get away from the conversation. Right? Jesus, Jesus just introduced an uncomfortable subject. I know who you really are. Nobody likes that conversation. Nobody likes that. I don't like it when it happens to me. I don't like it when Jesus does it, and I certainly don't like it when somebody else and a regular human being does it. I know who you really are. 
But I don't think that's true. As a result of my letting the scriptures speak to me and the truth that's there come from it, and from the studying of what it meant for a Samaritan person to who they were, I don't think she's actually trying to deflect and get away from this. I'll explain all that in a minute. But first, let's deal with this subject that she brings up, which is, you say, you Jews say that we are supposed to worship in Jerusalem, but our fathers worship on this mountain. The mountain she's referring to is called Mount Gerizim. There in Samaria, it's a very prominent place. It's spoken of multiple places throughout the entire Old Testament. In fact, since the time of Samuel, Since the time of Samuel the prophet, Mount Gerizim has been a holy site and it's been the primary focal point of worship by the northern Israel during the divided kingdoms and now by the Samaritans. It is also very likely, look, Jesus and this woman are sitting at this well, Jacob's well, and Mount Gerizim is a half, is a quarter mile away. It's like us standing down on Wilcox Street and looking up at Castle Rock. That's exactly what it's like for this woman and Jesus right now. They're sitting there. They can see Mount Gerizim. They can see the holy place where all the Samaritans worship. In fact, it was so beloved by the Samaritans that they oriented their synagogues to face Mount Gerizim, no matter where they were in Israel. Now, the Jews in Judea, they always oriented their synagogues to face Jerusalem. Now you start to get the picture of just how big of a conflict this is between the Samaritans and the Jews and why this question comes up for this lady. You Jews say you have to worship in Jerusalem. You believe it so much all your synagogues are built so that they face the city of Jerusalem, no matter where they are in Israel. But our fathers say we're supposed to worship here on this mountain, Mount Gerizim. And we believe it so much that all our synagogues are turned to face Mount Gerizim when we build them. So which is it? Well, we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves, actually. I mean, for us, I mean, this conversation, they know what they're doing, Jesus and this lady. But we, we have to step back. We have to actually have to go back to the Old Testament and start to grasp what this means for Mount Gerizim. And we do that, oh, but I, don't, I only have a couple of ways I can do this to you. I don't have time to go through the, lay it all out completely. So you'll just have to, we'll just have to do with a couple of things here. So Genesis chapter 12, Verses 6 and 7. Now remember, this is about the, the, the whole thing is driven by the ancestral fathers of Abraham and Jacob and Isaac and eventually other guys. So we start with Genesis chapter 12, verses 6 and 7. And Abram, right? Abraham's not even Abraham yet. He's still Abram. Abram passed through the land of Cana to the place that is now Shechem. Look, Shechem and Sychar in this well, they're like a little triangle, right? There's like, Shechem is like less than a quarter mile from the village of Sychar. And this well sets in between them. So, I mean, you're talking easily, probably a quarter mile most for her to walk to this, which is a lot, right? You think about this, carrying a, carrying a big pot of water. She's got to go a quarter mile. And so, Shechem is only a quarter mile from the well and maybe a half mile from the village of Sychar. So Abraham passed through the land to the place of Shechem to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, 
To your offspring I will give you this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So look, here's the first reason why Mount Gerizim becomes so important. This is where Abraham has the Lord appear to him and say, I will give you all the land of Cana as your inheritance. What we know of as Israel, God promises to Abram here. And it's such a big event that Abram builds an altar, most likely there on Mount Gerizim itself. And then we go to Genesis. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering, take possession of it. You shall set the blessings on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. Now, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal face were, were opposite of each other. There's a small little valley that was a road that goes from Shechem and Sychar through this valley up towards Gath and the coastal regions. It's how everybody got around, right? It's no different today. Where do all our roads run? They run through the valleys. They run through the places that are the most common and easiest places to go. So did theirs. And so Mount Gears and Mount Ebal faced each other, right? Exact opposite. They're like a half mile apart as the crow flies between the two mounts, the top of each mountain. Okay. They're not really mountains. They're big hills for us. Right. If it's not over 10,000 feet, it's not really a mountain for us, right? And so they're like 3,000 feet. So these are just big hills. But, you know, in their land, that's a big mountain, okay? And so what God is telling Moses through this moment is that when the Israelites take possession of the land of Canaan that's been promised to them, that he's delivered them out of Egypt to give to them, that they are to go to Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, the blessing is to be pronounced on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. If you obey the Lord, you will be blessed. If you disobey the Lord, you will be cursed. That's the simple idea that he's telling them here in, in this moment. Then Moses dies. Joshua leads the people into the promised land. They start to conquer it. And we come to Joshua chapter 8, verse 33. And all Israel sojourned as well as native born with their elders and officers and their judges and stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priest who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded that first to bless the people of Israel. So you remember that little valley I mentioned between the two hills and the road that ran through it? They're standing in that valley and they got the Ark of the Covenant sitting between them and half the people are on the Mount Gerizim side of the valley and the other half are on the Mount Ebal Valley. And they fulfill this command that Moses gave them of pronouncing the curse on Mount Ebal and the blessing on Mount Gerizim. So Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal were to be symbols, constant, never-ending symbols and reminders of the blessing of God through obedience to him on Mount Gerizim and the curse of God by disobedience against him on Mount Ebal. Every day when you woke up and you looked up and saw those two big hills, the blessing and the curse. Oh, yes. Obedience brings blessing. Disobedience brings curse. And then when this, the Israelites separated and all the mess that started throughout First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles with the nation of Israel apart from Judea that broke away, 
They turned Mount Gerizim into one of their idol factories. And it became the most holy place. And that's why the Samaritans looked towards Mount Gerizim. They rejected the vast majority of everything that Jews believed at that moment and held to just the first five books of the Bible as the Old Testament. They didn't believe in the prophets. And I mentioned how they oriented their synagogues to face Mount Gerizim because that's now the place of worship in their mind while the Jews worship in Jerusalem. So that brings us back to this question of the woman saying, I perceive that you're a prophet. Wait a minute. You don't believe in prophets. How can you perceive that Jesus is a prophet if you don't believe in prophets? Oh, wait. When she says, I perceive you're a prophet, she's actually opening the door by asking a question, could you be the prophet? And their understanding, there's no such thing as a prophet. There's only going to be the prophet who is the Messiah. And that's what she says later on. And so when she asks, when she makes the statement to Jesus, I think you're a prophet. She's actually opening the door of asking the question, could you be the prophet? Are you the prophet? They even had a name for him. He was called Tahib. Just as the Jews used the word Messiah, the Samaritans would use the word Tahib to refer to their Messiah. She's asking him, could you be the messianic restorer of our Samaritan theology? Could you be the guy we're looking for? Just like the Jews were looking for a Messiah. And what's also fascinating is this conversation and she beginning to see that he might just be the prophet starts through this conflict that's been going on for centuries between the Samaritans and the Jews about where to worship. And what's really the heart of that question, it's not about where do we build our church and where do I stand when it's time for me to worship God. That's not really the heart of the question. The real question is what does it take for me to be saved? That's the real question. Because if I worship on this mountain, I'm worshiping the way that our Samaritan forefathers have taught us to worship and I'll be saved. But you Jews worship in Jerusalem the way your Torah and your law and the prophets tell you to worship, and that's what saves you. Do you see the real question is, how am I saved? How am I delivered from death? And that's what Jesus is coming to offer her. This eternal water, the living water that he's offering to give her, is the salvation she's so seeking. And the question she's asking is, how can I be saved? You drink the water that I'm giving you, babe. That's how you get saved. You drink the water I'm giving you. And in the process, Jesus affirms the Jewish views of salvation. That salvation comes from the Jews. Now, he didn't go into a full-blown explanation of why the Samaritans' views were wrong and what the things they were doing weren't correct. He just simply says, look, the Messiah, your Tahib, he's coming from the Jews. That's the part she needed to grasp. That's the part the Samaritans need to grasp. The Tahib is coming from the Jews. Which then raises a whole nother set of questions for the lady. Which brings us into verse 23 and 24. 
But the hour is coming, Jesus says, and is now here. Notice in the previous verse, he said, the woman, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you'll worship. But now he changes it and the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The time is now. Jesus is now, he's pushing it instead of, oh, in some point in the future, it won't matter where you worship. To now, he's putting it to now is the time of salvation. The hour is now come. Is an often used by phrase by John to show that the time is now for the fulfillment of God's promises. And he's saying now is the time for the fulfillment of your deliverance. The time is now. And remember I mentioned earlier that geography matters? Now geography doesn't matter anymore. It doesn't matter anymore. Worship is not tied to a physical location as as has been their practice. Worship is from the heart, fueled by the truth that our minds comprehend. You understand that Jesus is your Tahib. That's going to change the way you worship. Your worship is going to be radically different once you realize he is the Tahib. Once your mind comprehends he is the one you've been looking for and embrace it as true, that changes the way you worship. John's emphasis on spirit and worship in Revelation has to also inform us here at interpreting what worshiping in the spirit and truth really means. And unfortunately, that's just like, we've got to read the whole book of Revelation to grasp that. And we can't do that. In a minute, we'll try something. Spirit and truth. Let's try this. To worship God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in spirit and truth is Holy Spirit-inspired worship centered on the truth of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. It's the moment where the truth that our minds can comprehend are joined with the emotions of our hearts and we feel and the Spirit fuses the mind and the heart into a one flesh union of love and worship expressed from the center of our being. Yes, I just used one flesh union of marriage as an illustration of worship. The heart and the soul have to be, by the power of the Spirit, fused into a one flesh union with our whole personhood of the mind and the body to worship. That's what it means to worship as a one person, whole person. Worshiping with the body from the mind and the heart and the overflow of the joy in our hearts. Realizing the truth is setting us free. And then we get to the very end of this paragraph and the parts that we'll look at today. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Remember the Samaritans, their view of the Messiah was he was coming back to be the great restorer and fulfiller of 
the Old Testament ideals. Everything that was in the law of Moses that he gave them would be completely explained, fulfilled, and the ideal behind it realized when their Messiah, the Tahib, came. And her question, once again, is an opening to allow Jesus as the Messiah. It's almost as if she's saying, I know that the Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. Are you him? And Jesus clearly and unambiguously claims his Messiahship. He is the Messianic prophet the Samaritans have been looking for. I am he. I am the deliverer that you've been waiting for. Just as Jacob and Moses were the deliverer for Rebekah and Zipporah, I'm now your deliverer that you've been looking for. And the I am he there in verse 26 is just so very close to an I am like God said in the burning bush. And it is a foreshadowing, I think, a foreshadowing of the great I am statements that Jesus is going to be making starting in chapter 6 of the Gospel of John. Think about this for a second. He sort of sideskirts the question from time to time about is he the Messiah when he's dealing with the Jews. But when this Samaritan woman asks him, well, I'm waiting for the Messiah. Are you he? I am him. I am your Messiah. It's just, it's just shocking and stunning to me that he just so blatantly comes right out and says, yes, I'm him. I'm the one you're looking for. When he so often seems to sidestep it when he's dealing with the Jews. Now, if you remember a few weeks ago when I talked about Jesus' favorite term for himself, the Son of Man, I explained why that was a, why the term Messiah was such a problem in the Jewish culture and why he avoided using that word, instead used, used that phrase, Son of Man. But none of that is a problem for him now in Samaria. And so he has no issue whatsoever telling them and saying to her, I am Tahib, Messiah. So worshiping in spirit and truth, I said, was this idea that we worship with our whole personhood, that the truth our minds understand fuels the passion in our hearts and our souls. And I also said that what John used because the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation are written so close together that we have to see how he uses spirit and truth and worshiping in spirit in the book of Revelation to inform us of what it means to worship in spirit and truth. And I'm just going to read a relatively small part of the book of Revelation to you now. I mean, I wish I could read like 10, 15 minutes worth to you. But I'm just going to read chapter 4 of the book of Revelation, starting in verse 6, and go through the end of chapter 5. And I know at first you're going to start, when I start reading this, it's going to be like, okay, how does this really help me understand worshiping in spirit and in truth? Stay with me. I'll get you there. So starting in verse 6 of chapter 4 in the book of Revelation. I'm kind of starting in the middle of verse 6. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. 
the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll and the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, okay, this is important. They switched worship from God, the father seated on the throne to the lamb. This is an important transition moment here. Do you see this? They're worshiping with this phenomenal level of worship, God the Father, and then Jesus portrayed as the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, the Slam that was slain. They switch worship from God the Father to Jesus the Son. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals and were slain by your blood. You have ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and a priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands and saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Wait a minute. They just said that about God the Father a few seconds ago. Now they're saying it about Jesus. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is within them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. So, so how does this inform us about worshiping in spirit and truth? Well, we got to start with the truth that these way crazy creatures, I don't know about you, but every now and then, have you ever seen a picture, have you ever seen someone draw a picture of what these creatures look like based on the description that John has in the book of Revelation? I have. I've actually seen a wall-sized version. 
It's frightening. It's scary. It's like, I ain't messing with that. Right? I'd rather wrestle a bear than mess with that thing. These scary-looking, shockingly powerful creatures bow down and worship Jesus? Well, I'm not going to do that. Wait a minute. The thing you're afraid of worships Jesus, and you're, and you're not going to do that? This is truth. Our mind comprehends it, and then our spirit responds to it. And thousands upon thousands upon thousands declaring, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and glory and honor and blessing. And everybody in heaven falls down on their face and worships him. This is truth. This is what really happens. Well, okay, are they doing that during the middle of World War II? Are they doing that during the middle of the Battle of the Bulge? What about during the Holocaust? Are these creatures doing this then? Yes. Try to put your minds around this. I'm still trying to, so no matter what's happening on the earth, the heavens are doing this. It's like his glory and might and power is so phenomenal, it overpowers and overshadows what we have experienced in the most evil of times here on the earth. And even in those evil moments as we're experiencing, the heavens are still glorifying and worshiping Jesus. Now I understand you can say, well, that just seems like they're just disconnected from reality. How could they be worshiping Jesus like that? when we're down here suffering the way we're suffering. Well, you know, there's a couple of possibilities. But the way Scripture reads is he's just that glorious. It don't matter what's happening. He's still worthy of worship. So what do we do with all this? Well, the first question I have for you really starts with a statement. Jesus is still looking for his bride. How are you doing with that? I know for us guys, this is a really hard thing. This is a big struggle. I still struggle with it. I hope you do. As a guy, I'm going to be Jesus' bride. Whoa, no, wait, ho. No, not me, not that. Well, that's a long conversation about what it means to be Jesus' bride. And it doesn't really mean the things we often think about for us guys to be the bride of Christ. But what it does mean is part of the whole church is part of his followers who worship him, who trust him, who believe that he will provide for us, that he is our deliverer, just as he was Zipporah and Rebecca's deliverer and this lady's, this Samaritan woman's deliverer, that he'll provide for us. And that no matter what we're going through, I know a little bit about that, going through unpleasant circumstances and unpleasant times, that even in the middle of the unpleasantness, He will provide and take care, and He is still worthy of worship even in the most unpleasant times. The second thing is we drink this living water of eternal life 
every time we worship Jesus in spirit and truth. Think about this for a second. I am imbibing in to the fullest degree. The only limitation to how much water I can drink is myself. And every time I worship Jesus in spirit and truth, I'm drinking living water. And the only thing that can interrupt and interfere with that is myself. But when we worship, we worship Jesus in spirit and truth and we drink the living water he is giving to us, which then becomes a well of living water flowing out from us. And while it is in our human nature to fix ideas and practices to a physical location, we must resist the idea that worship only happens in certain places. Like, I can only worship if I come to church and it has the right kind of music. Well, we kind of blew that out of the water this morning, didn't we? We didn't even have, well, I guess you could say we did have real music, but we didn't have live music. But we're still worshiping. And we must train ourselves to be in a worshipful state all the time. Like he tells us to be in a prayerful state all the time. In a worshipful state. And that, just like with being in a prayerful state all the time, it doesn't mean that you know our eyes are closed. Like being in a prayerful state all the time doesn't mean that my eyes are closed and I'm talking to Jesus constantly. It means that, you know, in the background, I'm listening for him. You know, kind of like the mom who's listening for the baby to cry when he or she wakes up. I'm listening for him to speak in the background. Same thing with a worshipful state. I may not be have playing music and with my hands raised glorifying Jesus, but in the back, you know, in the background, I'm waiting and listening for the song to start. We have to just be in this state all the time and look. I know that sounds like a lot of work, but there's a tremendous reward. Look, we need to be ready to respond to the Spirit's prompting no matter the location or the activity, right? If I happen to be in the middle of nowhere and the Spirit prompts me for worship and fellowship with Him, should I do that or should I not do that? This is an awkward place. I'm in the middle of, an, of the woods and there's nobody around. Well, that's kind of a good time to do it, right? Nobody can see what I'm doing. No one, I won't get embarrassed because there's nobody but the squirrels. But it just seems like an odd place. Like, well, no, no. No, do it. Do it. Because there's a blessing there. And what if I happen to be in the middle of the mall? Do it there too. Because there's a blessing there too. See, When we do this, when we stay in this ready state of prayerfulness or worship, when we do this, we are ready both for fellowship and mission at a moment's notice. He can be ready to call us to do something and we're ready to go at a moment's notice because we're in this prayerful, worshipful state. And even if there's not a mission moment there, if there's not someone he's calling us to reach out to or talk to or witness to, We have this opportunity right there in that moment, this unexpected opportunity for fellowship with Jesus, to feel his presence with us and to experience him in the fullness, maybe even greater than what we can experience here gathered together on Sunday mornings. And our best worship, our best worship will occur when we are in the spirit, reveling in the truth that Jesus is the great I am and we are his people. Nothing wells up within me the joy of my salvation, 
than the realization that the great I am spread his arms, pierced his hands and feet, took a spear in his side, bled so that I would be redeemed and made clean by his blood out of his great love for me. And out of his great love for you, he's done the same thing for you. Bled so that you would be washed clean and redeemed and to know him and to have real genuine fellowship and joy with him. That's worthy of worship. That's worthy of singing and glorifying and praising our Father and Jesus, our Savior, and the Holy Spirit. And because of all that, we're going to worship and praise right now. We're going to do this. We're going to sing. That's one. This is why I put more songs after the sermon than before the sermon today. We're going to worship with the joy of our salvation. And if you don't have the joy of your salvation, today is the day to grab it. Today is the day to put your total faith in the work of Jesus as your Savior and sing with joy. Let me pray. Lord, thank you, Father, for the wonderful gift of your saving love, Father. Thank you for your shed blood, Jesus. And thank you, Holy Spirit, for indwelling in us and welling up within us the wellspring of life. And I pray, Father, that now we would worship you in spirit and in truth with the fullness of joy that comes from knowing you as our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.